Where's the rest? Yeah, where's the rest? Well, I bought a few rounds of drinks over here while I was waiting, you know what I mean? <laughs> Tony says my credit ain't no good no more. <sighs> you know, $30 is enough of an insult. What'd I take it for Charlie? Ten dollars. Hey, Mike. Mike, you're really something, you know that? What's the matter? You're too good for this $10, huh? You're too good for it. It's a good $10. You know something, Mikey? You make me laugh, you know that? <laughs> You know, I borrowed money all over this neighborhood, left and right, from everybody. I never paid them back, so I can't borrow no money from nobody no more, right? So who does that leave me to borrow money from but you? I borrow money from you because you're the only jerk off around here that I can borrow money from without paying back, right? Right? Because, you know, that's what you are. That's what I think of you, a jerk off. <laughs> you're smiling like because you're a jerk off. <laughs> you're a fucking jerk off. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Jabin Hemingway, joined as always by Lee Carlo and Jeremy Fisk, baby. This week, gentlemen, we are reviewing one of our favorite filmmakers, first one of our favorite filmmakers, first films, and Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. I see what you did there. So uh, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> We're going to be reviewing Mean Streets, um, and also we're going to talk to Brantley Palmer um, of Palmer and Associates Horror Drafts podcast, and formerly of the Get Your Film Fix podcast, to talk about his documentary, Everything to Entertain You, about um, <clears throat> uh, video headquarters in Keene, New Hampshire. So we'll look forward to that. We actually just did the interview, so it's a little weird. So we'll we'll put it in. That's the magic of <clears throat> editing. Just a little behind the curtain for you there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, guys, so obviously um, the last time we were together was in July, and we talked a little bit about um, Scorsese, and I think, Lee, it was you who asked a question like, who's the filmmaker of ours that every w- when they release a movie we are most excited about? Not necessarily our favorite, and I think we all decided Nolan was I probably in. I asked this on the Oppenheimer pod. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, then the last podcast. Perfect. <laughs> um, and, well, I thought we talked a little bit about it when I was we in might have, but. Salem. Um, but, okay, so, I, I and I, I know that we've all, I don't think we've soured on Scorsese, but I just, for some reason, his releases just don't seem as special. Um, maybe because they're more frequent, but I don't know. Um, but I'm wondering, guys, like, like Mean Streets just feels like such a different movie than even taxi driver three years later it just feels like so avant-garde and new and kind of um you know very um very independent and 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 kind of like scrappy rough around the edges yes thank you jeremy and i i know jeremy this is this is like what you've wished scorsese to have to do again to make a movie for nine hundred thousand dollars or whatever this was made for but um do you guys miss this in Scorsese? Like, I, like, like thinking about that a little bit. Like, Jeremy, is this is this what you would want from him? Not necessarily 
the budget, but like, would you want him to deliver a movie like this now? Because to me, I, I said, I thought you could look at it two ways. You could say, yeah, this is great. This is just like pure filmmaking. They made it in like 27 days or 17 days or something like that. And, uh, had, had a scrappy budget and, um, you know, had to run from the teamsters and, you know, the opposite of Scorsese being like, Oh, what, what does it cost to build a Oklahoma town for four, $500 and you know, not really being <laughs> how, able to how do much anything. does a banana cost, Michael? Right. Um, or, but I, I think you could also say like, this is, there's a lot of glimpses of Scorsese's genius and like future stylistic flourishes to come. But this is not a representation of his best um, work. So I'm not saying you guys have to fall down in between those two, but I, th- that's just sort of my, like where I'm leaning to like those two things. And so I'm wondering where you guys fall on well, that scale. If, if I were to answer your uh, question about, you know, I've been the one that just wants to see a lot of these filmmakers, but Scorsese is sort of the one that brings, uh, brings this subject up all the time because he just has sort of an unlimited budget now. And that takes away a little bit of his creativity. Um, and you look at something like Mean Street, which, which I mean, granted, he, you know, he was so much younger and maybe had the energy to do something like this. Um, but I would, I would say, uh, I'd want to, I'd want him to have a few of these under his belt first. Maybe split the difference a little bit, more like a in the. Uh, taxi driver raging bull era of money instead of the you know shutter island gangs of new york era of money i mean it like you said javen there's like hints of of what scorsese becomes and the genius of it the use of music um the camera movement all that sort of stuff but it is a little it is a little bit too raw i think for me to really love this film um no now when you say raw is that like he's not quite polished enough as a filmmaker he's not quite polished enough as a filmmaker he's exploring with these ideas that he'll explore with over and over again between like um you know the the gangs and the religion and morality um that sort of stuff and it's all there but it's not quite it's not quite uh cohesive enough together uh for for me to like really love this movie yeah i i think a great example of that i had that same thought and the i think that came to me when in the uh jump and jack flash sequence which there's this sort of beautiful slow motion dolly shot into um harvey keitel when he when johnny boy first enters the bar and jumpin jack flash plays and it's i mean it's very similar in kind of effect and tone as the the that push in on de niro um in goodfellas when i think it's what what song plays during that lee um might even be another Rolling Stones song. It is. The dun, yeah. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Um, and, that, that uh, song. But the, the, that one, in Goodfellas, I think it just it fits so much better in terms of like the editing. It, it just works. And it just, it, just, it just feels a little jolted into Mean Streets. So I think that's a great 
example of what you're talking about. So, I mean, I think the easy answer is like Goodfellas is kind of the polished version of this in many ways. And over the years, like Scorsese's work has just become more polished and not necessarily in the, in just in that he's better at it, but the style and look of his movies isn't as like gritty and low budget and stuff anymore for obvious reasons. And I don't know that I want to see mean streets specifically from Scorsese, but I, I wish watching a movie like this, I was thinking, I wish we could see something like this from a new filmmaker again, because even though every now and then we get some new filmmakers that are really doing some interesting things, everything now looks so good. It's so like good quality is so accessible that a movie like this just is never going to exist again, especially from such a ta- like a filmmaker that's that's so talented. Like the mo- I, I've never so I've never really loved Mean Streets. I, th- I want to say this is maybe like the third time I've seen this, and I think I probably feel similarly. But the parts that I like about this, I just love it because I love watching a young Scorsese and just seeing the work that he's. Yeah, and like, it's the energy of it. Gotten so good at, and like the way that he can put music in, like he's still so good at that. Um, he doesn't really make movies where that happens anymore. Not really since The Departed, I guess. Where even in that movie, you could say it's a little ham-fisted in. Um, but if you go back to like Casino and Goodfellas and stuff like that, this is what you know. This movie is is you know part of that. Um, part of that grouping and I you know I just I that I, the scene in the pool hall I think is is so amazing to watch like you just you can see how good of a filmmaker is at work there and I wish we could have that experience again with somebody and I mean, like it's almost you better you don't feel it like, you don't feel like we had that um in um the drum the drumming movie the um whiplash whiplash so <clears throat> i mean they're never going to look they're never going to look as sort of like gritty as and that's and that's what i mean like i think intentional. i think i think i i miss the this isn't a perfect this isn't done perfectly but look at how good this guy is at this whereas like whiplash for example like that that's so seamless and like so sharp and like I think filmmakers have the accessibility and ability to do that kind of thing now that they don't even if you go to like Reservoir Dogs with Tarantino like he set no. himself up to succeed with his limited locations and everything but like that even is not rough around the edges like like this movie is and I think I think that um lack of perfection is is really charming about this movie and I and I kind of just miss that yeah, kind of like when I was watching this for some for some reason, I was like a little bit reminded of like Clerks, you know, because like yeah, Clerks it's the feels same a lot kind of like, idea. Like yeah, it's Clerks just... feels like a lot like this. Like it's, you know, they were really scrapping it together, but you've got these actors who who go on to become legends, especially De Niro. But like this is a long list of actors who go on to do a lot of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think. I think what I notice most, I mean, I, I like, I I love seeing the little, the the sort of the 
was it the Ronettes at the beginning? Like that, like the um, the the needle drops in this movie are so they're so good, good and kind of like rem- like set the stage for what Scorsese will do in later films. But I think what I sort of didn't, um, what I felt like was most lacking from Mean Streets, which is not edited by Thelma Schoonmaker, um, was kind of like a the, a cohesive narrative, and and I get that that's sort of the style here. But compared to like the rest of sort of my favorite Scorsese movies, he's a little bit more focused on the story. And the story gets lost in this film, which is probably intentional. But I just I, I, I don't think that works as well. I think the story is interesting and I'd like us I'd be interested. You know, I, I, I wish the I wanted the film to be more about the storytelling than it was. And he's got this kind yeah. of documentary kind of like avant-garde approach where um you know scenes are played out and you don't you know they're like things aren't quite as intentional as as they are in later films for him yeah i I agree i agree i think i think uh, a lot was trying he was trying to force a lot into this film he had so many ideas so many themes um you know so much stylistic ambition that he was trying to put it into this film that i think the story got lost in all that a bit which you can forgive to a certain extent if you think about it like he's however many years old at this point like he doesn't know he's going to go on to be the filmmaker that he is and have the amount of opportunities that he has and you know we know a, a decent amount about scorsese and like you know his history with religion and his like he has said that you know there was a time in his life where he thought he would become a priest and he, I think, like then he tried cocaine and yeah, <laughs> he tried cocaine. And, and but I think over. there's a, I think you can forgive it to a certain extent when he when you're looking at it and saying like, hey, from his perspective, like, I want to try to say as much as I can in this movie because I don't know if I'm going to have another chance. But I agree that the story, like, I love how this movie opens. Like, it's very simple. Like. You have your 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 key characters. Harvey Keitel plays Charlie. Um, you know he's vouched for Johnny Boy, who owes money to a bunch of people. And you get to that scene where he's like, "You got to pay him Tuesday." I paid him Tuesday. Yeah, and it's yeah. so good. Next this Tuesday, and then little by little, it it like you said, Chapin, it loses thread a little bit. Um, you get into the re- relationship with um, Charlie and. Johnny Boy's cousin Teresa and um I just think like the movie does not become convoluted or confusing at all but it's just not about the same thing all of a sudden and then you come back to it and then you try to combine the stories and it's not seamless it doesn't work as well so I agree 100% I think that's probably what's always bothered me because it also you know, was, feels was, it feels <laughs> a little outdated certain aspects of it maybe i was i was a half hour into this movie and i was like god this i'm really enjoying this like i i didn't remember liking this movie so much and then as it rolls on i'm just like oh i i kind of am seeing what i've had issues with and i think it is because it does i mean i don't know did this movie it's not a long movie did it need to be shorter did it need to just cut things out like i don't know how to be prescriptive about it but it, I, I don't know. This time watching it, it did feel long to me for some reason. Um, but uh, to go back to your point, Chapin, of the story, I, 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 I was thinking like a lot of 
comparing it to Deer Hunter, weirdly, because I feel like Deer Hunter had that sort of rawness that Mean Streets had. It didn't have the sort of stylistic flair, but it had that same sort of raw grittiness, um, but also seemed to capture the story better than Mean Streets. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It's it's that. Yeah, I, I think that's a great. That's a great example. I mean, he had a lot more money. <laughs> um, I'd like. I'm, so obviously, we're gonna talk about the acting, but what might kind of be interesting to kind of talk about alongside that is not this, not necessarily the screenplay, because we're you know kind of talking about how the story may not work completely, but the dialogue, the written dialogue in this movie. I don't know what was improved or like kind of messed around with on the day or what was fully written but like i think about again i go back to that scene in the pool hall the the before and the after the fight where it's like they're arguing and then they're like let's just have a drink let's have a drink and then they get in a fight the cops come they smooth it over and they're like all right let's just let's guys come on let's have a drink we're all friends here and just like the way that these characters all talk to each other just feels so authentic and yeah. like just funny and interesting and like so captivating but and I, also, I know that the performances bring a huge, like, play a huge part in that. But I think it's just, like, really well-written dialogue in this movie. Yeah, I love that stuff. But I've also felt like the fight in the pool hall, you saw some of the budgetary issues on that. It felt I, I a little bit. I loved that scene. Really? It the felt scene where a he, the bit. camera's following him yeah, around. Yeah, and then moving around to all the different fights, that felt a little bit. I loved that. Mm. Um. Chapin, I was thinking more about your original question. I think what I would like to do is have mid-80s Scorsese come back and do a, do a movie on this budget. That's what I'd like. Because he's had a few more movies under his belt. He's become already at that point a legendary direct, director. Um, I, think, I think that's where pe the peak... Uh, he's young enough still to have the energy to do a movie like this. I think that's what I'd want. What was Scorsese's best decade? The 90s. So the Ooh. 90s, you have Goodfellas, 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 you have Cape Fear. You have, you have Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Age, Age of Innocence, of Innocence Casino, Cundun. Cundun, Bringing Out the Dead. But then you have Bringing Out the Dead. and So Age of Innocence, Cundun, and Bringing Out the Dead, Take Them or Leave Them. Casino. I, mean, I haven't seen Age of Innocence. Or I have a long time ago. Kundun, I have not seen. Um, I like Cape Fear, but I mean, Goodfellas and Casino are obviously the standouts there. The 80s, you have uh, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, After Hours, Color of Money, Last Temptation of Christ, and New York Stories. Ooh, I think that wins. I mean, Raging I, Bull and King of Comedy is yeah, huge. Top, yeah, I mean, yeah, but I would take Goodfellas and Casino. I would too, but would you take any day um, of the week twice on Color Sunday. of Money and Last Temptation of Christ over Kundun and Age of Innocence? Like, and then seventies, um, you have. Um, I mean, let's start with Boxcar Bertha, then Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, The Last Waltz. So, as good as mean, like Taxi Driver is, Mean Streets is is good enough. That doesn't win. Um, I mean, the two thousands has good ones too. You have Gangs of New York, Aviator, Departed. Shine a light, Shutter Island. I guess yeah, Shutter Island I think, goes into I think it's not 80s or 90s. I mean, uh, I think, 
you know, Goodfellas. I, I recently rewatched Goodfellas. I honestly think it might be the best movie ever made. It is. I, every time I watch it, I have. I just can't <laughs> get. I, like I just, I get a cinematic erection so big whenever I watch it. There's just something, just so inspiring still to this day about that film. Well, I told you guys I saw Casino on 35 millimeter in the theater, and it, oh, I, I had a awesome. sim. I mean. I had a similar experience, and I saw Goodfellas. I think that I had the same. I did. I, did, I saw Goodfellas the same way, in the same theater. And yeah, I mean, I wish you guys could see Casino that way. Like, not I'd love to pause to. it and yeah. just like see it on film and in the movie theater. It's just like it's 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 overwhelming. Um, I kind of want to just watch that movie now. Um, well, let's, let's get, talk about the acting. Yeah, yeah let's this. get to the performances. I mean, God. I mean, I forgot how good De Niro is in this. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but he is so good. And my point about Scorsese being like, "Uh, I don't know if I'm going to have another chance to make another movie. Let me get everything in. Like when he's watching dailies of De Niro, is he like, oh, my God, I hit the fucking jackpot. I love loose De Niro. It's just so, Mm -hmm. so nice to see. Um yeah, I don't know what else to say. He's, uh, you know, it was like something uh, you, I bet people hadn't seen at that point. Um, I, I mean, every time he's on on screen, he absolutely not steals like that. It. Not with that kind of energy. Like, obviously, he's adopting a style of acting that comes from Brando and before that, like Paul Muni and like all these guys. But like, never with that kind of energy, and like, like the chaotic nature of this performance, like he acts like he doesn't know what his next line is like, and that's how Johnny boy would behave. But like, you see that in his performance and like, he's so like, he's such a short fuse. Like you never know what he's going to do. And it just like makes for such compelling, it makes such a compelling movie, whether you like the story or not, all you want is him back on screen. And there's like a 30 minute stretch where he's not in it. And we're all like, okay, let's get Johnny boy back. And what a good introduction to a character and a sort of character description in their introduction. I mean, there's this guy, he just th- randomly throws a a grenade or whatever it is, yeah, a, a firework <laughs> into a mailbox and blows it up and just runs away. There seemed to be no motivation there uh, other than like Scorsese telling us this guy, whenever he goes on screen, could blow this whole, like blow this whole thing up. He was yeah. a walking stick of dynamite. Um, what do you guys think of Kaitel in this? He's really what good. What do you guys think about Kaitel in general? I mean, I, I, I think he's one of the more overrated actors. Um, and and you know, he was like the. I always like I, I, I and and I think I've come around on that a little bit. I, I, I get it, but like he was just kind of the like. I feel like the patriarch of the. <laughs> of the late eighties and 1990s independent film scene. And, um, I, I never loved him. I think he is quite good in, in this movie. Um, uh, I, I think he's really good in this actually, but he like, I feel like he loses. Fo- I feel like I, in the, some of the long takes, I feel, I see him losing focus. <laughs> it's just like, you know, on this set. There was oh a lot of, there's God. There was a scene where he's standing next to um, uh, Michael, and they're like wh- they're like listening to Johnny Boy talk, and and you know Johnny Boy is basically he's it's the scene before he pulls the gun out, right? Yeah, yeah, at the and, bar, yeah. and 
Yeah, and it's a long take on them. While while De Niro is basically just like telling him to go fuck himself, and they know like he knows like this is over. Like they're so fucked, and he is just like his vision kind of like drifts off, and like <laughs> he's not really in character. And I mean that's. I don't know. That's that's probably a nitpick. But other than that, I thought he was great. And I, I don't I'm not someone who like loves Harvey Keitel. Well, I, I, I like him. I think he's good in that. I don't know that he has a lot of range. I agree like, with that, Lee. He kind of does I don't want to say don't he know plays this. the like, same person. Yeah, you don't know take this. Take this time. isolated at the time. <clears throat> Although I would say I, I say he doesn't have a lot of range, but then the next time he works with Scorsese and Taxi Driver, he's very, very different. But I don't he, necessarily I, mean he, that he, he plays. He gets a, like a wig and puts a slight accent on there. I don't know. I don't so think he, do, that he doesn't play the same character every time. That's not necessarily what I mean by range or lack of range. He just kind of has like the same affectation, like the same line delivery, like the same cadence all the time in every character. Well, my issue wasn't his performance. It was sort of how the character was written a little bit. I had issues with him no matter what Johnny Boy did. He was supposed yeah. to be like he's supposed to be like this sort of tough, like in charge, keeping it cool guy. But Johnny Boy would just do whatever, and then afterwards he'd say, "You, you know, you stupid piece of shit, blah blah blah," and and then like defend him again all the way up to the end. That's and not it, in the script. Like you don't know why he's so loyal to Johnny yeah, Boy. Exactly. That's well put. Like the loyalty to Johnny Boy doesn't make any sense to me, and that bothered me in this. Yeah, bothered me too, especially like yeah. And not even necessarily the end when he takes them, when they like leave together. There's a scene before that when, um, when Teresa has the seizure. Yeah, and, like, that should have been the and end. Goes with Johnny Boy. I'm like, what are you yeah, doing? Like, that should have been the end. And then the the gun pull scene that should have absolutely been the end. But for some reason, which we do uh, has never been explained in this, um, he just keeps defending this guy for some reason. I don't know. I don't get it. I also yeah, kept running into issues because Michael, the character of Michael and the character of Tony just looked a little bit too much alike. And I would get mixed up about which one of them they were talking to at times. What do you guys think about the ending of this movie? It feels what, what, unexpected. What it feels unexpected, Chapin. It doesn't seem like the rest of this movie. This movie, this movie honestly didn't feel like it should be a violent movie, weirdly. Oh, Up that's until... not what bothered me. I was, to me, it was, it didn't end. Like, what happened right. to Johnny Boy? <laughs> yeah, we don't, uh, we don't see what happens died. to him. We don't really see what happened to the other. I mean, they just sort of like they're injured, but they're fine. They they yeah. survived the car. But do you crash. guys do you guys agree that like up until the point where uh, whatever David Carradine's character gets shot, like nobody was nobody was threatening more than a fist fight in this movie, and it like it felt like this was a certain level of criminality where they didn't use ultra violence and that ultra violence wasn't really part of this story well the david carradine part was another one of the like the strands that like went and they tried to add another element to the plot that didn't stick i think that scene is amazing but the yeah yes you're right like then it's the scene uh, after with like the bosses talking or whatever like somebody's cousin is like why was he there like it doesn't really fit with the story you take that out and i like the violence at the end because you there's not really anything there until then Um, yeah yeah i i would agree with that i think that i think the david carradine violent the the gunshot there 
like took away from what we had just seen the rest of the movie as far as like the established sort of it's, level of criminality we were at and it's it, that whole sequence is sort of strangely edited and there's no i mean maybe intentionally but there's no build up to it there's no tension building up to it like like we think that they're home free there's these like jump cuts about the direction like them arguing and joking about the directions of where to go or something they're both yeah. kind of picking on harvey Keitel, and then, and all then of a sudden, out of the nowhere the guy shows up um and you know like you can i i, I sort of remember i love that, how scorsese's that, like i have to be the one to pull the trigger yeah just like in taxi driver <laughs> um i i just remember in those days when we were making movies still like it was easy to sort of go that way right it was easy to kind of like just <laughs> things just happened right there's right. no there's no kind of there's no tension building there's no sort of like classical cinematic tools used um which i would normally just like you know sort of chalk up to scorsese being a new filmmaker but like we know he can do this like he does it extremely well in taxi driver a couple of years later like the build-up to the the shootout at the end in taxi driver is incredible and so much tension and that whole sequence is just like you're overwhelmed by the amount of violence that happens and um this scene just like the way it hap develops it just feels like lazy like it wasn't sort of filmed correctly and and I, and maybe that's what you know maybe that's Maybe that's what we're getting at with this, and 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 I th I think your comment earlier Lee was really interesting that we won't see a, a movie like this from a filmmaker anymore because you you sort of we have the tools now to make a complete movie, right? And like we can like with digital you can see what you've got and right right you know like who knows I I heard they had I I read in the IMDb trivia trivia that they had like six days shooting in New York most of it was shot in L.A. Um, and so. A lot of those, and maybe that shooting sequence happened in in in, in yeah, they had was to filmed in LA. Quick, yeah. But like they had to move so quickly that maybe they just didn't get the pieces they needed, and then they were stuck it's with also, what they got. Stuff was cut out too. I don't know what the distribution situation was for this, and um, how the production went. But like maybe there was more that got cut out, not necessarily in that specific scene, but like more to understand like these characters relationship with violence. Maybe there was more to the scene with David Carradine. Like you watch that scene when the guy keeps shooting at him, like everybody in the bar, like Tony and Charlie and like all these guys, they're like ducking behind the bar. Like they're not, they don't look like people who are accustomed to seeing violence like that. Like you see no, in definitely not. like a movie like Goodfellas where, <laughs> where spider gets shot and everybody's just like, what the fuck is the matter with you? Like, yeah, I I also wonder to add to that point, Chapin, if, um, you know, we also now have a hundred plus years of cinema behind us. I mean, this is still being made in a very, in a time of movies where things were still changing. Things were, were still new. And I feel like now everyone's just going to be like, you know, you pull a gun out. And people will be like, oh, that's lazy. What, what, just have a character pull a gun out. You know, like, I feel like there's, there's too, it, it's tough to do that sort of new, like, n new filmmaker who's just running and gunning, no pun intended, 
without the knowledge, without the technology we have and the knowledge we have to get this sort of frenetic new feeling. And I think and that has a lot a to do with it, too. This is a new era of cinema, too. I mean, we haven't mentioned, but the reason we're doing this is that this movie is 50 years old now. Yep. Um, and this was the early 70s where, you know, directors like Scorsese and, you know, soon-to-be Spielberg and... Coppola. Coppola and, and De Palma like, and, were yeah. making movies that nobody had ever made before. So, th- yeah, there's no, like, rules on this stuff. Or there's, no guideline, there's no guidelines for which this Which is type so of thing. cool. Imagine being a filmmaker back then. That's that's just, there's no, you get to make make the roadmap, really. Um, and you can't, I don't think that could be done nowadays. I, I just, you know, we can, we can advance technology. We can make avatars. We can make uh, Oppenheimers. And, like, we can, we can get these really cool-looking... Yeah. Technology f- is changing movies, not, art, not like films, artistic. But, yeah, we just like, can't get this sort of... Um, I don't, I don't know what the avant-garde sort of look anymore, unless done on purpose. And then it's no longer avant-garde; it's retro avant-garde. And I think that's, you know, I think Mean Streets deserves. Like, if even if we don't love this movie, I think part of the reason it stood the test of time and it's sort of an iconic look back is obviously Scorsese's career, obviously De Niro's career. But you know, you said Jeremy, it's like this, this this director like starting a roadmap on like what movies are going to be and look like. And the very start of that is not going to be super polished. It's a little messy. Like there's some mistakes made. So, cause the, that director and the next director said, okay, like there needs to be more to my story. If I'm going to pull the gun out at the end and mean streets is like this stepping stone to that. And it's still so like, well-made at times like there's still such innovation with the camera work and the acting is good and the dialogue is good and the writing is good and i think for all those reasons this is a you know a really important and interesting movie to look back on but it's not great it's not great in terms of like especially in like the scorsese canon or even the 70s canon or like the de niro i mean it's one of de niro's top five performances i don't know like I mean, it is interesting. It is interesting that like context is key with this this film. Um, yeah, if you, you just know. showed this to somebody and were like, I mean, oh, you, you could like still feel movies? it. You could still feel it. Like it's there. You can feel the 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 newness to this film for right. sure. If you you know, but um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to see a movie at all these movies of this time. You know, I mean, Deer Hunter is another one. Like, they were just think, doing yeah. new things. <clears throat> I think if you had just kind of like your average film goer watched Goodfellas and they're like, "Oh, I loved Goodfellas," you and you said, "Oh, you should you would like Mean Streets." It might not go over real well, but the flip side of that would definitely work. If someone saw Mean Streets and they're like, "Oh, I saw Mean Streets, I liked it," and like, "Oh, well, you should see Goodfellas." Because it's just like the next step in the evolution of this type of movie. Yeah. And and then it goes like it's it's a little bit of a bell curve too. I mean, and then you go you you like Goodfellas, you like Casino, check out The Irishman, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, you know, like, which ah. is a good movie, but it is also you know it's going that's it's, like it's where coming the polished down. aspect yeah. went too far. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Irishman is oddly like the complete opposite of Mean Streets in so many ways. Like, it's so much story. It's so polished. Like, it loses kind of like, 
and I liked the Irishman, especially when I watched it again on Netflix in like six different pieces. Um, there's so much of that movie that I like to go back and rewatch, but it, it's like, you know, it's just a lot for, that's what I mean. Like, it's not just the budget that Scorsese has. Like it's, it's the, the style of movie he's making is just not the same anymore. Yeah. Like, He's he does like especially with working with like Rodrigo Prieto he does an Irishman and you see it in the trailer for Killers of the Flower Moon there's like these really like stylized slow motion shots and stuff and like like very very steady camera work it's not as energetic and frenetic as it used to be. But we'll say this: uh, filmmakers are still emulating what this guy did back at fifty years ago. It's yep. it's wild. I mean, he is, like, the consensus answer from filmmakers about, like, the most influential and greatest filmmaker of all time. The video cassette recorder is one of the hottest products on the market. It was the dawn of a new world, the latest must-have technology. A top-loading video cassette recorder. Television stations no longer dictated what to watch. With a drive to the video library, the latest Hollywood title was yours for the night. In February alone, Americans bought three quarters of a million new video cassette recorders. That epidemic of video fever has set the stage for the latest high-tech invasion from the Far East. The first uh, real video store collection I ever saw was Video Headquarters. And Keene, New Hampshire was somewhere we used to go all the time for the movies or to go out for supper. So when uh, the first VHQ opened, Ken's first store, Oh my God, and Ken had the best collection. Um, he had, uh, uh, people don't understand that when the market first appeared, there were a couple of outfits. There was Magnetic Video, who had the license with 20th Century Fox. They were the outfit that released Star Wars, and that was like, bam, you know, that was the Pearl Harbor of, of the video market. We are, as promised, joined by former Get Your Film Fix podcaster and current filmmaker and yet Brantley Palmer Brantley welcome to the show uh we all just watched your new documentary um everything to entertain you is that still the title of it that is yeah it is uh awesome. everything to entertain you uh I guess it has a subtitle which is the story of video headquarters but you know everything to entertain you is what most people I think know it by so thanks I, and for I having me I called you a former podcaster, but of course you're still a podcaster, just not on this podcast. That's you true. have your yes. own podcast called Horror Drafts. Can you want to tell the uh, audience a little bit about that? We were all we've all been on it. I think yes. me most memorably. And um, I yeah, I was I was the first. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, the, I was my brain. The, yeah, in the second episode, I really spiraled during that episode. It was, I was uh, so good. It's the one I tell people not to listen to just because of how, how poor my performance is. Nothing to do with Lee. Uh, I just feel like I went off the rails. But you, know, yes, you, just, you just have to sorry. not release the ones you don't feel are good. That's what I do. That's true. I <sighs> guess that could it. be the way to do it. <laughs> well, we, we record so infrequently. Uh, I feel like we got to put out everything we do. But but anyway, yes, it's Horror Drafts is a, uh, a podcast I do with my wonderful co-host, Nick Schwartz where we bring a guest on and that guest brings us a topic in horror. And then we draft things like a fantasy football draft, uh, within that topic. And, um, it sounded like a really good idea when I pitched it to Nick. And then we've really realized over the course of doing it, that it's so much work and homework because you're not just watching one film, you're usually cramming by watching 
10, 15 films that are related to <laughs> that topic. And it's, I apologize to Nick on a weekly basis. I feel like that I roped him into the podcast. How is it? How is it doing? Like, are you, do you have a lot of listeners? Do you have a lot of good feedback? Cause you know, we don't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say that we have a lot of listeners, but I'd say that we have a, a healthy, uh, you know, core fan base who, who likes our podcast. Um, you know, downloads wise, That's a good we, way to put it. Healthy core fan base. I think we got that yeah, too. We, just yeah. have that. we have that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, I, I don't want to get into specific numbers. I will say that for a long time, Jeremy's episode on cinematography and horror was our most downloaded episode. What could have possibly taken it over? Uh, I believe horror remakes, which was one of our most recent ones by Dan from the five day rentals podcast, uh, had taken the top spot. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, moving on, I think, I think horror drafts is so successful and probably more successful than the get your film fix podcast because you guys have discussed, you guys are appealing to a niche, a niche, and mm. I have I have proposed. Well, we have an idea for a really great podcast that we know is going to do well, but we can't announce it here. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, but I have I have tried to shift the Get Your Film Fix podcast into a solely Soviet cinema <laughs> podcast. Um, and since uh, our Soviet era film reviews were the were at one point our best reviewed, our best listened to episodes. Um, nice. But, Let's stay, get back on track, gentlemen. I apologize. So we're here to talk about your documentary. Thank you. It's one hour long. It is about the closing. Well, it starts with the closing of, um, now tell me the video store's name. Video Headquarters. They were video Headquarters. Keene, New Hampshire. Yeah. Keene, New Hampshire. And it closed in 2015? Yes. So have you been making this movie for eight years? Essentially. I mean, Tell us you about know, that. So I follow up to that, Brandon. Like, sure. did you was it your? Did you do the footage? Did you film it at that time, or did you like get the footage afterwards? And you're like, I got to put this together. So I filmed um, all of that footage of the store closing in 2015 when it was happening. In fact, I got word that the store was closing before they started putting up any of the signs and everything. And that's why in the film you'll see I'm in there with them on the morning when they're cutting signs and putting them up in the windows, they gave hmm. me access to do that. There was this film wouldn't be possible without like Ken McAleer, the owner of the store and all of the staff who were there at the end, like giving me the ability to come in and do that sort of stuff. Um, so yes, they were, they let me come in and film that stuff. And um, it happened to be a time in my life where I didn't have a child. Uh, and, and I had the That's time helpful. to be in there to, to be filming that sort of stuff in 2015 when it was closing. Um, and then the only interview we did while it was closing was Ken, which is why every time I see it, I see the mistakes I make in it. Um, and I feel bad for Ken because I really effed up in some areas, but, um, but all the other interviews were with staff basically like later that summer in 2015 after it had closed. Um, and then so most of the footage, the actual filming happened in 2015. And then it was a lot of editing, research, searching for material, that kind of thing for a long time. And it was spurts of creativity and working with it and then long periods of it sitting and not doing much, basically. So, Brentley, when I when I heard you were doing this, it sort of made perfect sense because you, you kind of do this for a living, right? Well, no, I'm a... 
<laughs> I'm a librarian and archivist for a living. This, this, but, I mean, uh, in terms of like, you know how to do research and oh, yes, yeah, which to me was like one of the best parts of the movie is all this great, like, archival footage of the, um, like, I, I specifically really enjoyed the, uh, the the old video um like trade shows that they would have in vegas where they built those incredible like <laughs> i mean there was like an entire corner of a warehouse dedicated to Jurassic the jurassic park opening which i absolutely yeah. remember desperately wanting a copy of that and remember like they were sold out for weeks and weeks and weeks so obviously it worked but yeah um i love that stuff so i mean i, I just yeah. in that sense you're you've got training in that and you kind of do it for a living, right? Yeah. Did that was that helpful at all to this process? Definitely. And 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 specifically working at academic institutions that had access to databases and stuff allowed me to have access to things like Video Business Daily, Video Business Weekly, or like all of these trade magazines that um, some of the packages that the databases had had access to. So that was very helpful. Um, and yeah, a lot of it was just, you know, me trying to search and find anything related to these VSDA trade shows, because that was like stuff where I'm like, what am I going to use during this? Because the, I want to talk about these things because they were so huge and people have no idea about them uh, unless they were in the industry. And thankfully, in like 2020, I found this guy named Ray Glasser who lived in Vegas during the 90s when all these trade shows would be coming and being in these massive convention centers and I was able to he had a, a website on his YouTube page and I followed that and was able to get his contact info. And I was like, hey, I'm doing this documentary. Would you mind if I use your footage? Because it works so unbelievably well with the stuff for my documentary. And he was happy to oblige. And I told him I'd credit him not just in the end credits, but anytime it's on it's on screen. And, and he was very happy to do so. So it worked out unbelievably well. I, I couldn't have uh, imagined getting better footage for for those trade shows. Yeah, that was cool. That was something I didn't even know about um, until mm-hmm. I watched the film. Uh, so, Brantley, like, let's start a little bit at the beginning. Uh, why? What was your passion for making this film and to continue it through the many years um, that you have? And then mm-hmm. I have a follow-up question after. Okay. Um, well, I've always loved uh, video stores. I've worked in video stores on and off for almost 10 years throughout my you know life. I started at 16 working at my first video store, Video 2020 in Bellows Falls, Vermont, and then I uh, went right from that to working at video headquarters for the four years when I was in college from 2004 to 2008. And um, from working at VHQ, I knew how amazing it was. I knew how great Ken was as a person and as a boss. Um, and I knew you know, how great of a video store it was. It literally won the award for best video store in the country, um, you know, in 97. So that was one of my impetuses for doing it because I've always loved video stores, but beyond that, the business of video stores and how important they were to like the financial uh, success of a film um, was so huge back in, especially the 90s, but partially the late 80s and, and definitely into the, you know, early to mid aughts when DVD really exploded as well. You know, there was, gosh, when, when we ran the get your film fix website, I don't know if you guys remember, I wrote a piece one time that was like, why you should care. Video stores are going out of business. hundred percent. Remember, I was going to ask you. Yeah, I think I remember that. And, and it was essentially, and I can't find it. I've tried finding it on the Wayback machine. I don't think that specific page got archived, but 
Um, I, it was, I, I bet I could find it. Maybe, yeah. Um, but part of it was specifically that the amount of money films used to make from home video was used to be about half of their revenue. So when, when, when you start getting rid of that revenue because things start moving to streaming, you know, suddenly you're going to have films that are making or, or are so much more heavily reliant on their theatrical take. And, you know, studios are going to become less and less um, risk, risk, you know, willing to take risks, basically. You know, it's going to become more and more, uh, you know, more safe things that they think they'll be able to get, essentially. Um, so anyway, yeah, that that was part of it, too, is just, you know, the importance of that industry as a whole. And it's one that, you know, has has come and gone for people our age. We know it. We remember it. And we're kind of like, oh, yeah, I remember going to the video store and stuff. But I think for a lot of younger people, they have no idea. You know, there's people who never went to video stores and have no idea that it's important. Yeah, I heard a quote from Matt Damon or an interview with him where he was talking about how the sort of like mid range, like, I guess what would be like a hundred million, like the sort of Oppenheimer budgeted movies of that time were sort of buoyed by home video sales. So they wouldn't like do crazy business um in the box office they would do well but then they would then you they would make you know they make i think like 70 percent of the of the sale of a of a dvd and dvd and video were, was crazy back then and so they could make mm-hmm. a lot of money and make a, a a pretty nice profit off of those sort of mid-range movies so now yes. studios are unable to <clears throat> they don't have that revenue stream i mean it'd be interesting to discuss where that's coming from now is like streaming seems to be a different type of business it's not like a movie by movie type of business anymore but now yeah. i think what you were trying to say is like the, the studios are a little bit more risk averse at that for that reason is that they were they're they're they don't have that like you know guaranteed kind of 10 figure nine figure you know outcome from from video yeah. And I mean, you know, certainly there's a number of films that were made on a relatively small budget, you know, that that two to 20 million dollar budget that maybe they bombed at the box office. You know, they made five or six million. But then on home video, they made like 25 to 30. And suddenly there it's a. Profitable, not in the eyes of Hollywood studios, you know, with their accounting, but like, you know, it, it's it's made some money thanks to that home video, essentially. Um, and yeah, you just don't see those anymore. You know, streaming has become, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't work in film or for streamers, but to me, it just seems like a shell game, uh, a further way to do more Hollywood accounting so you can prove a film's making less and less money, but it's yeah, still available I mean, for people I, to watch. I work in film and I still, I the economics of it baffles me. I really yeah. don't understand because they're still spending so, so much money on, I, I see the money they're spending and then I, I don't know where. Obviously, they're making money, but they don't want us to know how. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, the industry's clearly going through something now because of that. Is something um, going on, Jeremy? So that we don't yeah, know a few things, a few things going on, a <laughs> few strikes. Um, so, brilliantly, uh, have like Ken and the others seen the film since uh, you put it out? How are their responses? Do you still keep in touch with them? Um, were they like, oh, I forgot about that? <laughs> well, when I when I reached out to Ken a while a little while ago, once the trailer was done, and I said, "Oh, hey, by the way, Ken, here's like 
here's the trailer. Like I've, I've actually like kind of gotten to a point where I'm like finished with the movie, you know, I'm all, you know, work to get you it's in festival. I'm like putting it out to festivals. Now he was shocked. He was like, wow. Okay. Like I, he's like, I'm sorry. He's like, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Like, you know, people say they're going to do things and you know, it's been so long. I wasn't, I really wasn't expecting this. Um, and Ken has seen the movie. He's seen it actually a couple times. Um, and you know, I, he, he really likes it. He really appreciates it. He, I, you know, I, I, I worry because of Ken's personality that I thought he would be a little, you know, worried about being the focus of the film. Cause that's really the story. The, st- the story is video headquarters and it's the home video business, but really it's a story about Ken and, and his importance to the industry and how this like one guy with one store in Keene, New Hampshire, like far from New York and LA can have such a, like a big impact on the entire industry. Um, that was the most important story to me. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I was worried how he was going to take that being such a central focus to the film. And I think he does think it's like a, a little surreal, but I think he really appreciates that and really likes the film. And I, I know other people have seen it and I've heard from some people. I know there's a lot of VHQ, like former employees and customers who are still looking forward to seeing the film. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to hear kind of what more people think about it when they see it. Um, so Brantley, I know this movie kind of combines a lot of passions of yours. I mean, I, so you, you said that interview with Ken was in 2015. For some reason, it feels like to me that you've been working on this longer and maybe you have, cause it, it feels to me like this has been a conversation that we've had on and off about this, um, since we were in college and I know it doesn't go back that far, but I, I remember you working at video headquarters. I think I went there once. Um, I was a little mm. bit a part of the problem. I had this thing called Netflix and they were mailing movies to me and didn't have to leave oh, my, nope. leave my scene. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, you know, obviously, um, you know, video stores in general, I think has always been an interest and a passion of yours, but also, um, and you know, as Chapin pointed out, you know, um, archival things and like research and stuff, but then also physical media. I know that you are passionate about and Chapin, I know you also still dabble in physical media. Jeremy, Jeremy and I are kind of out of that game. Um, which I don't know on, on one hand, like I regret not keeping up with it. Um, but it is what it is. Um, I, I've sent the link to that article you wrote, um, in the chat on Skype, um, yeah. which was written in 2011 and you get into kind of the economics of like home video versus theatrical receipts and stuff like that. But I, I found it interesting just listening to those interviews, not necessarily with Ken, but the people talking about Ken in the documentary where they're just sort of like blown away by how ahead of his time he was in terms of the economics of buying VHSs and then buying DVDs and buying Blu-rays and just like knowing where the industry was going. And I don't know if you have any insight that wasn't in the documentary about just how he just had his finger on the pulse like that. You know, I think the thing with Ken is he, he is very much like a businessman. So even if he's, you know, running a video store in Keene, New Hampshire, he's going to be as involved in the business as he can be. And so, you know, being a part of the different trade associations like the VSDA or like being, I mean, not just a part of them, like literally running, different aspects of these like, you know, different groups and, you know, the independent video retailer group and things like that, you know, he, he just like, he, I think could see trends coming and being a smart business guy knew what other 
people were planning and stuff and or at least had a good idea and therefore, you know, wanted to try to be as ahead of that as he as he could be. Now, I think he knew that in order to compete to Blockbuster, because Blockbuster was in Keen, you know, against him, he had to be a big giant store, a superstore that had a better selection than Blockbuster. Because, you know, as it, as it talks about in the doc, a lot of these mom and pops that just sprung up and were tiny get like swallowed up or put out of business very quickly because they just can't compete in that regard. So I, I can't say I have a ton of insight, except I will say one thing that didn't make it into the documentary. I just couldn't figure out a good way to do it was that Ken actually started a website. That was literally for like independent video stores. Um, he started in the late '90s to um, basically pool resources and like as a as a real repository of information for all kinds of stuff with the business, so that they can plan accordingly for their store. Like, how many copies should I get of X movie? Depending on like if I'm a rural, suburban, urban, you know, kind of store, you know, based on the foot traffic I get, and you know, the, all that sort of stuff. Um, so he had kind of created a repository for, for all these other businesses to come in and, you know, get the information they needed to succeed. Basically. I mean, I think that says a lot about him too, to know in the late nineties that the internet was a place to start a network like that because that it been, wasn't yeah. a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> that would have no. been amazing if he started a website and started streaming those movies on there. <laughs> that, you know what? That, that would have been, been really, amazing. he just yeah. missed out on yeah. that. I, um, I have a question, it, Oh, yeah, go it, ahead, yeah. It, was, was that a good business? I mean, did he, did he make a lot of money from that? The website? No, 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 from, from Video Headquarters, like... Yes. I mean, look, I mean, I, I don't know any... I, I don't know Ken's personal finances, but... Sure, of course, I mean, yeah. the, the, the guy made, like, a very comfortable living as, you know, a store owner of, of a single independent store... I mean, there was a point in like the late 80s, they had three locations, you know, one was in Manchester, and one was in Nashua as well. But um, they consolidated and got out of those fairly quickly and just kind of put everything into Keen. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, it was, I think, a very comfortable business for him, especially in the 90s through the mid aughts. You know, Ken talks about the peak of the business really being like 04 to 07. And then it was like a, a gradual decrease after 07. Gee, I wonder what started up in and around 2007, you know, what, what Prime was Video the, um, streaming on Netflix. What was the final straw? I mean, he was like one of the last uh, yeah. video stores to remain open. What was the like, I just can't do it anymore moment? Well, you know, he kind of talks about it in the doc, which is just that the lease is up. And that location was just so expensive to be in because it's so big. I mean, right. you know, they had over 40,000, you know, movies alone let alone not including like video games and other like titles. Um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big video store. Um, not just in 2015, just like in general, um, you know, not a lot of stores have that much volume like of titles. So trying to find another location that could house the store and all of that collection was just too difficult. And I think he probably, you know, I don't want to speak for Ken, but I imagine that, you know, at that point in his life, you know, he was ready to retire. You know, he kind of just seems in the dock. He's like, "Eh, okay, it's time. Let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't didn't strike me as somebody that it didn't look like somebody who had spent like 30 years of his life doing this and working hard at it. He was just like, okay, next. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Ken is um, he's not super precious about. A lot, you know, so so even though it's his business, something he built and created, 
you know, over 32 years, he wasn't like, well, I've got to stay here until I just possibly can't because this is everything to me. You know, he, he basically was just like, you know, I've made my money. It's still technically, it's still a profitable business. It's just, you know, do I want to put everybody through the hassle of having to move to another location and try to downsize basically? So why not just get out while the getting's good? I mean, it's insane to me that he lasted that long. Like, I mean, it's one thing to see, you know, blockbusters go out of business. It's a, it's a big chain. They're big franchises. Like their, their threshold for success, um, is lower. Like, Mm -hmm. but for people who don't know, like Keene is a college town. It's not that big. Mm -hmm. And so like, you can't, you can't survive on college students. For 30 no. years like this is like oh. it's kind of incredible that um a store like this did so well for so long i mean um obviously it's a credit to all the people involved um unless you guys have anything else like i think the most important thing we need to ask brantley is where people can see this um and when and how it will be available for people yeah th- what, what when is this going to come out do you mind me asking well, that's a great question <laughs> yeah what if only we knew <laughs> um hey how about how about tomorrow tomorrow okay uh, I can tell you that uh, as of uh, August 17th, when this comes out, uh, the documentary will be is still streaming on um, the Shorts Daily app, which is uh, if you have a Roku device, you can subscribe to Shorts Daily uh, anywhere in the U.S., possibly Canada and other places. I'm not sure, but definitely in the U.S. you can. Uh, it's, it is $5.99 a month, um, but it would give you access to not just everything to entertain you, which is a part of the Hollyweird Film Festival, but uh, also like in, uh, any of the other film festivals, festivals excuse me, that, uh, that are a part of that, that app. Um, so you can still do that until the end of August on August 23rd at 4 PM. It is screening at the Vermont film festival, which is going to be in Woodstock, Vermont. Uh, so if anyone wants to come out and check it out there, they can, it will also be, uh, screening at the Monadnock international film festival, but I cannot disclose as of August 17th, when that screening time is going to be. The festival runs from September 29th to October 1st. So that gives you a uh, an idea, though, of when it will be screening at Monadna. All right. Brantley, can you say mm-hmm. August 18th and then say August 19th and then say August 20th? So we can just plug that in when Chapin inevitably re- releases this on a later date. <laughs> yeah, and then say yeah. August 19th of 2024. Yeah, sure. Sure, I can do that. <laughs> um, well, thank yeah, you, Brantley. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Brantley. Um, and yeah. everybody go check out the movie and check out the Horror Drafts podcast. Um, yeah, and uh, we'll have to have you on again once uh, the movie industry gets back going again and Jeremy is missing from episodes. I appreciate yeah, it, guys. True. Thank you so much for having me on. All Good right. See ya. All right.